Thank you, Becca and team. It's beautiful. Uh, it's our great desire, right? That Christ would be born in us. And the only thing we really have to offer is a vacancy. Love that thought. Thank you very much. It's real beautiful. Welcome, everyone, this morning. Glad that you've decided to join us for worship. Um, if you noticed in the bulletin, the title of the sermon this morning is Emmanuel, God with us. And again, that's the great promise that we think about, not really just at this time of year, but really all year long, that God wants to be with us. You know, when we think of that name, Emmanuel, which actually means God with us, it's not only God with Christ, but God with us, with every person that we are to meet. Um, some of you know that I'm uh, from a Jewish background, I was born in a Jewish family, and shortly after my conversion, I was in my hometown, a little town called Peekskill, New York. Uh, it has kind of a checkered history. There were some race riots there in the 40s. But all that settled out by the time I came into the world. But as I lived in Peekskill, down the street from a little restaurant that I worked in after I became a Christian, was a rabbi of the temple that I went to when I was growing up. I went to the first Hebrew congregation of Peekskill. That's where I was bar mitzvahed. And um, so I was visiting with this rabbi, and we were talking it was a little bit of an awkward conversation because I had become a believer that Jesus was the Messiah. And I pointed out to him what it says in the Gospel of Matthew. His name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And he looked at me with a very sage, wise look on his face. And, you know, Stephen, that's my name, Emmanuel. And, you know, momentarily, it took all the wind out of my argument. Um, yeah, just because somebody's named Emmanuel, what does that mean? Except there was one person called Emmanuel that was very unique, in whom it really can be said God was with us. And there's something about the birth of that Emmanuel, that's unique and different from anyone else that bears his name. It's kind of what I want to look at this morning. Um, do you have your Bibles? I invite you to turn with me um, to the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 4. And as I mentioned last week, as we think through certain questions related to the story of Bethlehem, really the story of Bethlehem is an inexhaustible theme. We can keep coming back to it. And several months ago in this church, we began exploring the question, why did God become man? What's the purpose of the incarnation? Why did God take that step and become incarnated in the man Jesus Christ? And how we answer that question will impact another question, which is what kind of man humanity did God assume in the person of Jesus? So the big question, why did God become man? Why did God become a human? And how we answer that will impact how we answer another question, what kind of humanity did God assume? And that's what I want to explore a little bit this morning. But before we do, last Sabbath, we looked at the book of Ephesians. And in the book of Ephesians, there's a passage 
which tells us that by nature, we are children of wrath or children deserving of wrath. We talked a little bit about that last week, and I had several people ask me questions after the sermon, and I said, well, why didn't you just ask in the middle of the sermon? Um, and, And so I just want to invite you, if I say something and there's some question percolating in your mind, just shout out, raise your hand, whatever you're comfortable doing, okay? Okay? Yeah, okay. By the way, a friend of mine uh, in Maine, he's, he's recommending that his church get rid of all the pews. We don't have pews, but we have chairs. Get rid of all the pews and just have round tables. No, that's what, that expression, what's my wife did? She did the same thing. She was like, <laughs> no way. Okay, so I'm not going to recommend that we get rid of the pews if you'll communicate with me. But if you don't, then we might go to round tables. I can see some of you like really don't like the idea. How many of you don't like the idea of round tables? Raise your hand. Yeah, like, okay. How many of you like the idea of round tables and would like to try it? Ooh, we have a little bit of a division going on. <laughs> the whole purpose of the round tables was to facilitate communication. So did you have a question, Teresa, before I even got there? What? That's what the well does. Well, I didn't know anything about that, so. Okay. Um, I'll have to ask my friend where he got the idea from, all right? Back in Ephesians chapter 2, where it talks about being by nature children of wrath, the question kind of came up, well, what about babies? So last week, just in a real short summary, I said that the fall has impacted all of humanity. In other words, we are all born from sinful parents, and we are born in a sinful world. Would you agree with that statement? Most of you would. We're born from sinful parents, and we live in a sinful world. And so that question, a person came along, so what about infants? And I'd like to quote um, somebody I don't quote very often, but it's Charles Spurgeon, great Baptist preacher. And he said this, what should we say with regard to infants? And then he says this, scripture says very little. And therefore, where scripture is confessedly scant, or where scripture is silent, it is for no man to be dogmatic. So I like that. The Bible doesn't really address infants and their situation. The Bible addresses individuals that can make choices, which is us. So we can leave that to a just and kind and merciful God, and um, we can deal with what's before us, and that is how do we respond to God's grace, right? Now, there are um, individuals that would disagree with Spurgeon, uh, but we're just going to leave it there for now. So let's go back to the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 4. And in the book of Galatians chapter 3, we studied this not that long ago in Sabbath school, but in Galatians 3, Paul's talking about how we become children of Abraham through faith. And so then in chapter 4, he builds on that idea, and he says this, Now I say, Galatians 4 verse 1, As long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. So that's pretty clear. You may be, um, you know, back in in Paul's day, or we could try to make some kind of a connection today. If someone's going to be an heir of an estate, an an heir of a, a large inheritance of somehow, but they're still a child, they may be an heir, but do they have full access to the inheritance? 
course not. Again, even in our day, we may say that people receive their inheritance when they're 21. When my uh, father passed away in an untimely manner, there was a certain settlement from a lawsuit which didn't become mine until I became 20 21. I was an heir. I was going to inherit it, but not until a certain age of accountability. And that's a little bit of what Paul's saying here. You can be an heir, but if you're a child, you're in a different category. Verse 2. But he, the child that is, is under, under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, not children in age, of course, but children in a different sense. Continuing verse 3. While we were children, were held in bondage to the elemental things of this world. Here Paul again is talking about what it's like before our conversion, before we become followers of Christ. And as he says in Ephesians 2, we follow this fallen nature. We are held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. Same kind of thought as in the book of Ephesians. Verse 4. But when the fullness of time came, what did God do? He sent his son. And then he qualifies it with two distinct phrases. What are those phrases? Born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those that are under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Now, as, what, as Paul does frequently, and Peter mentions this, so I'm not speaking out of line, but Paul sometimes starts on one track, and then he confuses it a little bit, and then he, uh, he comes back. Uh, and so what Paul started, he said, well, well, we're all children, and we're heirs. We don't have the authority yet, but now he's kind of said we need to be adopted. Let's not be overly confused by Paul's mixing of metaphors. And what's he trying to say? That we're children, but we're held under the things of this world, the elemental powers. We could say it our fallen nature. We live a life of rebellion against God until something happens, until we receive the adoption as sons, as children, we could say. And what is it that enables us to receive the adoption? Well, when the fullness of time came, when God saw things ripe in the world, when the fullness of time came, and it's interesting, if we think momentarily of what the world was like when Christ came into this world. And again, there are different countries, but in those days, there was one major ruling power, Rome, and it had a, a saying, the empire had a saying, Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And we've all heard the saying, all roads lead where? To Rome. Where did that saying come from? Well, the Romans had built this huge, extensive network of, of roads. You could traverse the entire empire. So at the appointed time, when the fullness of time had come, when one language was largely spoken, when communication was relatively easy, when travel was easy, at that time, what did God do? He sent his son, Emmanuel, God with us. God came into humanity. And then Paul tells us here, again, and uses two distinct expressions. He was born of a woman, born under the law, for what purpose? What's the purpose? 
What was that? To redeem us, to redeem those that are under the law, each one of us, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Have you received that adoption as children of God? Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of a son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, no longer a slave to these elemental things, no longer a slave to the nature of wrath, but a child, a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. What a beautiful transition. Instead of being held under bondage to a uh, nature of wrath, a fallen nature, God wants to make an exchange with us where we can be freed from this position and we can enter into the position of being children, full heirs, adopted into the kingdom beautiful transition that happens for us. And the way it happens is through Emmanuel, through God with us. And let's look momentarily at these two expressions that Paul says here. He says that God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Uh, What do those expressions mean? Again, it's important for us that we be very clear that when we talk about this nature of wrath that we all have or this fallen nature that we all have, we understand that we're born from fallen parents into a fallen world. What was it like when God became man in Jesus Christ? Well, first thing Paul here says, and he says he discusses this in many places, he says that he was born of a woman. What was the woman's name? Mary. So, interesting. Keep your finger here and turn back with me to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 2. And even though December is not the time Christ was born, we know that pretty well, uh, it's okay if we take a lot of aspects this month and consider this great event. Luke chapter... Actually... I want you to go to Luke chapter 1. Excuse me, I said Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 30. So that beautiful song that we sing, Mary, Did You Know? sung last Sabbath, special music. So somebody very wise said to me, you know, that song asks all these questions about Mary, but if you read the text, it says that Mary did know a lot of this. Um, Maybe we have a hard time listening to women. So Luke chapter 1, verse 30. The angel said, excuse me, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Would that we each would find favor with God. Verse 31, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be called, he will be great, and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Quite an exalted position. But then Mary asked this question, well, how is this going to happen? I'm a virgin. Um, I'm I'm not married yet to Joseph. We haven't consummated the wedding. Verse 35, then the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child will be called, what? 
Notice, what's he called here? The Son of God. In other places in Scripture, for exact, in, for instance, Jesus' most common expression about himself is not the Son of God, but what? The Son of Man. And so here at this very announcement of the birth of the child, of Emmanuel, we see something. Um, we begin to, to look here at this. We see clearly that the incarnation is a unique event. Despite my rabbi friend whose name is Emmanuel, this Emmanuel is very different. This Emmanuel's birth is very different. His father, he doesn't have an earthly physical father, but according to the scriptures here, the Holy Spirit is going to overshadow Mary. The physics of that, I'll leave to somebody else. But what takes place is that a child is incarnated in the womb of Mary. That child, in the Gospel of Luke, is called Jesus and is called the Son of God. But it's important here that we realize the uniqueness of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That there's a union here of God and man. How close and how real is this union? Or how close really is this connection of Jesus to Mary? What kind of humanity did God become in the incarnation? Well, there's three things that get discussed in this, three different theological circles. I'm going to share them with you just briefly. So the first viewpoint theologically is, let's take, for example, the position of, of Roman Catholicism. Our friends in the Roman Catholic Church, as they look at this, they say that something, a miracle took place in not the birth of Jesus. Well, yes, that's a miracle, pardon me. But in the birth of Mary, that something happened when Mary was born that broke Mary's connection to fallen humanity. That's the doctrine. It's called immaculate conception. It doesn't refer to Jesus' birth. It refers to Mary's birth. And that because the chain of heredity is separated from Mary and her mother, then when Jesus is born, Jesus is born unaffected by heredity, let's say. That's the immaculate conception. Is that clear? Yes? You can go back to those round tables. You don't speak up. A Protestant viewpoint, a, a typical Protestant viewpoint, would disagree with the Immaculate Conception and say, well, there's no evidence of that in Scripture, and I would agree with that statement. And so the other viewpoint um, is, let me get the exact phrase, it's called divine intervention. And that is when Jesus was in the womb, and this is a common um, Protestant viewpoint, that when Jesus was in the womb, somehow the Holy Spirit insulated Jesus from the effects of heredity. In other words, Jesus was born, he would get tired, he would get hungry. But the fact of having some connection to all his ancestors, there's some kind of a break. So Immaculate Conception, the break is made with the birth of Mary. She doesn't have a connection to heredity. Um, in Protestant thinking, Jesus doesn't have the connection. It's broken supernaturally in the womb. The problem with that, from my viewpoint, is scripture doesn't say that any place. So then we're left with a third possibility, 
And that is that in the incarnation, Jesus really receives the heredity of all his ancestors and actually comes into the world as a human being born of a sinful parent and into a sinful world. Now, how many of you are impacted by your heredity? Okay. How does that play out in your life? You know, lots of knowing smiles, but uh, sometimes good and sometimes bad. Okay, so let's, let's speak about somebody in the third person. How would heredity impact somebody else? Maybe somebody you know. You don't have to talk about yourself. Physical deficiencies, like? Okay, so. <laughs> now, thank you, Marcia. Let's think about that for a little bit, okay? And this, this is really good. It's a good illustration. Varicose veins would be an effect of living in a sinful world, right? Adam and Eve did not have varicose veins, trust me. <laughs> varicose veins would be an effect of living in a sinful world, but varicose veins are not sin. Is that clear? So I can have an effect of living in a sinful world, varicose veins, but that's not sin. Okay? Sin is more volitional, more choice-directed. So, but what other ways does your heredity impact you. Say that again, sorry. Okay, so sometimes our, our culture can trigger a whole host of things, Dean. Alcoholism. So alcoholism is really interesting. There's a lot of studies done that if your parents are alcoholics, you have a greater disposition toward alcoholism. Like It's like what uh, Dr. Hawley says in with the Dinner with the Doctor lectures that, you know, genetics load the gun, but lifestyle pulls the trigger. So we can have a whole host of dispositions in our humanity, right, that we can get from heredity. What about Jesus in the incarnation? Galatians 4 tells us that he is born of a woman. What does that mean? Well, clearly, he's born of Mary. What? Selfish. Selfish. Well, what do you mean by that, Dr. Thornton? <laughs> okay, every baby that you've ever known is totally self-centered. That's true. That's really true. Huh? Nah, -uh. I've got a couple of babies over here that are not so, and I have a couple of grandkids that I know are not so. But leaving that aside... Okay, let's think about this momentarily. Let's think about this concept of heredity. Is there a break between Jesus' heredity and his ancestors, the way either Catholicism or Evangelical or Protestantism teaches, or is the biblical aspect that Jesus really came with a heredity like ours? Well, remember, what's the title of the sermon? Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us. 
if he has a break in the heredity, is he really with us? Let me, yes, Edwin? So, okay, so there's two, two places, Luke and Matthew, you refer to Matthew, where there is this genealogy. Why put it there if there isn't connection? Edwin, you're going to say something similar? Yeah. Um, let me read something to you. Uh, this is from a great book on the life of Christ called The Desire of Ages. And it says this, It would have been an almost infinite humiliation for the Son of God to take man's nature even when Adam stood in his innocence before any evil choices. But Jesus accepted humanity when the race had been weakened by 4,000 years of sin. Like every child of Adam, he accepted the results of the working of the great law of heredity. And we see what those results are in the genealogy, in his ancestry. So Emmanuel, God with us, born of a woman, Now, it's a unique birth, no question. Luke chapter 2 brings that out. It's unique, it's distinct. But when he comes into humanity, he is really God with us. He's come into a situation similar to the situation that you and I find ourselves in in this world. This, to me, is one of the most encouraging teachings in Scripture. Encouraging and not encouraging. Why? Well, it's, it's not encouraging because now I don't have an excuse for my heredity any longer. You know, just say, well, that's because I'm Jewish. That's why I do these things. Um, But Jesus really stepped into humanity. Why? For what purpose? He was made of a woman, made under law, born of a woman, born under law. For what purpose? That he could redeem us. And the fullness of his being God with us, being one with us, shows that he really can redeem us. Whatever it is that we might be battling with, he is able to give us aid. Yes, Luke. um, Your name isn't Luke at all. (laughs) I'll get it in a minute. Richard. Good question. <laughs> nah, I'm not going to get to that. Right. So, again, when we look back... Sorry, David, are you going to say something? A little louder, please. So, let, did everybody hear Richard's comment? Richard's went back to Ben's about, well, but what about these babies? How come Jesus didn't act that way? So on one hand, in the incarnation, Christ needs to be tempted in all points like as we are. Paul says that in the book of Hebrews. On the other hand, we know that he was not like every other child, except for the ones that are perfect over here. Um, He was not like every other child in that uh, he didn't have temper tantrums as an infant and things which we typically see in children. How is that?
Okay, so from our point of view, we can make a, a, another choice. Second, Teresa, and I'll get there. But let me go back to Richard's question here about the babies. And there is an interesting point, as um, it was mentioned, as David mentioned, that in Luke chapter 2, he, Luke chapter 1, he is born of the Holy Spirit. So the, he is the Son of God and the Son of Man. So there is a uniqueness there. He's the only child that's born that chose to be born, that he came into the world with a surrendered will. Not my will, but thy will be done. And so I would think that something of the answer to your question, why did he act differently as an infant, is because he made a choice before he was birthed to come into this world. And then again, what you're saying, we can make similar choices to allow him to live with us, in us, which is vitally important. Teresa? So there would be a learning process, for sure, because he developed like a child would develop. Sometimes you have these old pictures, um, when I say old, I mean like Middle Ages or Renaissance pictures of Jesus as a baby. And if you look at them, his face is like an old, wise man. And uh, serious, if you look at you know, art, classical art, um, lots of pictures that show Jesus as an infant have this wise, mature face. It's still babyish, but, but that's not the way Jesus was as an infant. I mean, he developed as a child. Of course, there's this connection between his two natures there. Ben, and then I need to move on. So yes. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7, 8, 9, talks about Jesus learning obedience. Right. That he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. So there is a, there was a growth in him. We need to be very careful that we don't think, well, yeah, so he was sinning and then he learned not to sin because he is described as sinless. Okay, so, but the reality, and again, there's lots of good questions. Say it again? Developmentally. Developmentally, right. Right. Yeah. Um, so, uh, it's good. See, we don't even need round tables. <laughs> the other, let's go back to the book of Galatians just briefly. Galatians chapter 4. The other expression, he's born under the law. What does that mean? Born under the law. So born of a woman, clearly he's born from Mary. And uh, what I'm saying this morning and people disagree with this, but I'm saying this morning very clearly that his connection to heredity is not broken, that he came into humanity as it existed in the world when he came into the world, born of a sinful parent, born into a sinful world as well. He's also born under the law. This does not mean, as some people think, simply born under the Jewish law. It's not Paul's point here. How do we know that? Because he says in the rest of the verse, that he was born in the law so that he could redeem those who were under the law. Who is that? That's all of us, completely, all of us. 
So it's important for us to understand that the law extends not only to our outward actions, but also to our inward thoughts. Temptations come to us when we are influenced to do something wrong. But we have the choice and the freedom through Christ's death to resist by faith. Christ overcame a similar circumstance, being tempted and yet saying no to those temptations. Um, In other words, let me just put it this way. He put himself in the exact same position of those he came to save. Let me read something else to you. This is from a manuscript. It's a Review and Herald article. It has some beautiful thoughts. And it says this, The love that Christ manifested cannot be fully comprehended by humanity. It is a mystery too deep for the human mind to fathom. So we think about this, God becoming man. What's involved here? What's he trying to do? But then it's too deep for us. And then she goes on to say this, Christ did, in reality, unite the offending nature of man, that's us, with his own sinless nature. Why? Because by this act of condescension, he would be enabled to pour out his blessings in behalf of the fallen race. Why did God become man? Because he wants to bless you. He wants to pour grace abundantly into your life. He wants to be with you. He wants to guide you. He wants to correct you. He wants to nurture and help you. He wants to pour his love upon you. And in order to do that, he had to take humanity as it was when he came into the world. Let me give you an illustration. There's a doctor by the name of Paul Brand. Some of you might have heard of him. He worked in India for many years with leprosy, Hansen's disease. Um, He wrote a book called The Value of Pain, something like that. He he talks, he writes with Philip Yancey several books. And in one of the books he wrote is called In His Image. And he talks in that book about humanity and how it relates to salvation. He lived in an area, a city called Valor. And he had several children. And there was a breakout, an outbreak of measles in this particular village. His daughter, one of his daughters, received the measles, and he had a young daughter who was relatively newborn. She was at great risk. If she had contracted the measles, uh, there could be many tragic consequences for her, but because of her age, she was a very high risk. The doctor, the the pediatrician, told Dr. Uh, Paul Brand that what they needed was convalescent sermon. And what is that? Well, that's sermon from a person who had contracted excuse me, measles, had overcome it, and withdraw it from that person, it would protect the child, like a vaccine. And so word spread. This is what he says in his book. Word went out around the lore that the brands needed the blood, quote, of an overcomer, close quote. This is all a quotation. It was no use finding somebody who conquered chickenpox or who recovered from a broken leg. Such people, although healthy, could not give the specific help we needed to overcome measles. We needed someone who had experienced measles and had defeated that disease. They found somebody, injected his daughter with the convalescent serum, and of course, she was healed. The borrowed antibodies fought off the disease. 
And then he makes this point that Estelle, his daughter, overcame measles not by her own body strength, but as the result of a battle that took place in someone else's body. The blood of an overcomer saved his daughter. We need something similar. We need someone who has been infected with the disease and defeated the disease and has overcome it. And that's what God wants to do. He wants to give each one of us the blood of the overcomer, Jesus Christ. No break between his experience and our experience in relation to our fallen humanity. Certainly, we live in different times. But he is our brother. He has gone through experiences like what you and I have gone through. It's the blood of Jesus that enables us to overcome. It's almost, Brand says, it's almost as if he went out of his way to expose himself to temptation and to encounter temptations that you and I encounter as well. Do you want the blood of the overcomer to be applied to your life? It's Emmanuel, God with us, with me, and with you. Into this world that Satan claimed as his dominion, God sent his son as a child. And as we all recognize, infants are the most helpless part of humanity that there are. Could you imagine the father sending the son as a child into this world to fight the battles we face with all the attendant risk that's involved? Why did he do it? So that you could receive the blood of the overcomer. So that you and I can be protected, inoculated. That you and I could have him, as the song sang, have him be born again in our own hearts the vacant place in our hearts. That's what we have to offer. But God longs to fill it with his presence. And just as it was God with Jesus, God wants to be with each one of us as well. The question is, again, are we willing? Are we willing to give the the vacancy in our place, in our hearts, to his presence? Emmanuel, God with us. Let's turn to our closing hymn. So we think about how he knows how to sympathize with us, how to give us help, how to partake of our nature. It's all truly amazing. So let's turn as we sing, tell me the story of Jesus. Please stand. Tell me the story of Jesus, write on my heart every word. Tell me the story most precious, sweetest that ever was heard. Tell how the angels in chorus sang as they welcomed his birth. Glory to God in the highest, peace and good tidings to earth. Tell me the story of Jesus, write on my heart every word. Tell me the story most precious. 
sweetest that ever was heard. Fasting alone in the desert, tell of the days that he passed. How for our sins he was tempted, yet was triumphant at last. Tell of the years of his labor, tell of the sorrow he bore. He was despised and afflicted, homeless, rejected, and poor. Tell me the story of Jesus, right on my heart every word. Tell me the story most precious, sweetest that ever was heard. Tell of the cross where they nailed him, writhing in anguish and pain. story so tender, clearer than ever I see. Stay, let me weep while you whisper, love made the ransom for me. Tell me the story of Jesus, right on my heart every precious, sweetest that ever was heard. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for sending your son to be born of a woman, born under the law, that we might be adopted as your children for eternity. Father, may our hearts thrill with overflowing as we begin to contemplate something of your great love for us. So we continue to think of this season. Truly may we open our hearts that you might be born once again in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated.